This, this, is the, this is the kind of... I'm tired. Yeah, oh, it's a good way to Lord. start it back up. We sort of all are at this point. Because we're all in this together. Hey, 2008 yeah. called it. We want that back. <laughs> I'm not sure that was like 2006. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Well, welcome to the Geopolitical Pivot Podcast. I had to do it. Yeah, you know, it. we've been going for two months. Yeah. I, uh, I, I honestly expected that to be on. You can go home. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> you can. I, hey, I had to sneak. You walked. Way in here. That's the problem. Right. You snuck in here, he and snuck. then you came down here smiling, and then just randomly opened a locked door. So, okay, so, so Samaj's place, like you can't get in without a key, and. Brian vampired his way in. He like, he, like a, a mist just came through every I'm single telling you, that makes it easier for me to get into other countries without people noticing. CIA, I hope you're listening to this. And they probably are. Red flag. Jesus, red flag operations are about to happen. Um, anyhow, so I know that we have been gone for two months. Um, I'm not going to apologize for that because we were definitely building a business. Oh my goodness gracious. Um, we have come together to establish Athon Enterprises, uh, which can be found officially on the LinkedIn. Um, in addition to that, we've been producing some open source intelligence assessments, geopolitical trend um, analyses. Uh, we've also started up our Twitter uh, for Athon News, um, and Instagram for Athon News, and even the TikTok for Athon News. Which and the I'm, Chinese who are listening. Yeah, then the Chinese that are listening. Um, and Guangdong. Uh, I'm pretty sure they hate my guts after I exposed <laughs> a lot of their missile movements <laughs> over the past month. Um, Especially how to, how the launches were going. Oh, know, 100%. Sure. The only sad part is they were all successful. So, Yeah, they were pretty actually successful. <laughs> Moving on, though. So the first 20 minutes of this were going to be very, um, not brief, we'll say, but just kind of give people an update. Um, in this particular podcast on what in the world have been, has been going on in the past one or two months. Um, and then on the coming weeks, we're going to get really into not just China, Taiwan, but also what's going on um, in Russia and Ukraine, Palestine, and Israel, slash Iran, slash Lebanon, slash Turkey. The Levant. So, yeah, the Levant, um, essentially. Um and then kind of pretty much re-picking up on Steam where we left off uh, about one to two months ago. But things have been happening behind the scenes. Um, and we are here to stay. So with that being said, on the first 20 minutes, we're going to go into, let's say, uh, China, Taiwan. Um, do like little 20 minutes. And then we're going to switch over to some recent developments in uh, Russia, Ukraine. So Wainwright... Samaj just took my old intro thing. I used to do the intro, and now Samaj is taking it all. Uh, you know, I can't really... I mean, China and Taiwan, it's been going through every news cycle from low culture to high culture. In the office year, people talking about it, if you're involved at all in national security. Um, the big thing that everyone's been kind of remarking on is Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's really unforeseen trip over to Taiwan for about a day, where she did enough to... M- you know, flip over all the dominoes, and then she left. So that left everyone in a kind of interesting position. What I find most lawyers is she was only there. She was only there for like maybe two to three days. Yeah. And it created one of the most hyped political events in all of East Asia. Yeah. For those three days. Yeah, and and I, I, I don't know if it was such a bad thing. 
A lot of people, it, there's an argument you made. It was, listen, because if, nothing else, because if nothing else, nobody expected it. Sometimes that's what you need in national security. To cause a fourth Taiwanese crisis. Well, no, yes, that's, well, yes is, because, this, because when you knock everything down, you get a chance to build it up again. Maybe you can build it up in your image. In my view already, I'm going to say, honestly, my view is I think it was a good thing it happened because when I remember when I looked at the news and then China was freaking out about it at first, I was like, okay, they're probably going to cancel it or something just because mm-hmm. they don't want to ruffle China's feathers. But when I heard, oh, she's going, I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. And then it just turned into the main, I, I think it was honestly a good thing because for the U.S. it shows we are not going to get bullied by China to, and we were able to do our own, we were able to do our own policy, etc. But what it also gave, and I'm going to play devil's advocate on this, mm-hmm. it also provided the world, not even just the world, but also provided even some maybe some potential CCP skeptics within the CCP, the quickness China could ready itself for any type of massive escalation or military tension in that area. Just think about it. They were able to implement and muster, quote unquote, they call it a military exercise, but essentially it was a strategic uh, projection for the implementation of a blockade. How long did that take? A day, mm-hmm. if that, it was literally being implemented when Pelosi was there. Yeah. Between that and their their threats towards the end of July, and the, Pelosi, you better not show up. What were they able to do? Not only were they able to essentially streamline a news class of submarines and put them into not just not, not even just production, but just overall service, and now they're there now. But they were also able to, one, test out multiple launcher rocket systems. They were able to test live artillery firings. They were able to test ballistic missiles that went not even just to the Taiwanese Strait, but around Taiwan. They were able to implement, was it like four or five red zones essentially around Taiwan that if Taiwan were to do something else again, they would be able to implement a maritime chokehold on Taiwan and disrupt Taiwan or Taiwanese Strait. Um, cargo you know, trading in, in volumes, which is something that will significantly uh, impact American industries immediately. That's, that was able to be achieved in like three days. Yeah. Three days. Good. Yeah, I mean, people might argue that Nancy Pelosi is living in her own reality, but she was able to make everyone see the like, geopolitical truth of U.S.-China-Taiwan relations. China can project a lot of power in its near abroad very quickly. And a lot of U.S. policymakers now see that. They see the practical implications. And now, because their illusions have been shattered, whatever they are, and they've got the truth of things, they can start making more prudent decisions. Mm-hmm. So that, that was the Nancy Pelosi bit. The other interesting bit that wasn't talked about enough in the news, except maybe if you're a Indo-PACOM buff, was uh, the U.S.-India maneuvers in Tibet. Oh, mm-hmm. I remember that. Yeah, exercise. So, so, I mean, that kind of, I looked at that in a, in a kind of different way than what I looked at Nancy Pelosi. That, Nancy Pelosi's way of doing stuff was kind of like Trump. You shake it all up, you see what's going to happen. That's why I looked at that. The India-U.S. cooperation, that I saw as a bit like a rollback type of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas, okay, we're on your border right now. You've got U.S. troops on your border. You can't be safe. And, and it, brings, it brings Chinese policymakers to think, oh, wow, we have border disputes with a lot of countries. 
with every country that they border. And so then that gets them to not concentrate their forces as much as they would otherwise want. I thought it was very interesting and a candy way of, of just kind of diluting the problem. I'm, I'm trying to remember this. Like, I have to look it up again, but I feel like it was involving those border disputes. I remember they were mentioned throughout this entire thing, and I think even some countries were sort of reacting by putting troops along the border. I think Tajikistan put like troops near like the Afghan. Well, yeah, because the... one of the um, the Chinese border disputes with Tajikistan is that they want basically. There's a particular mountain range that cuts Tajikistan into essentially two. China yeah. literally wants the mountain range to their border, like, no, which they, would take they want 50. The entire right, thing. exactly. No, so I get it why Tajikistan would do that. Um, but interesting enough, at the same time as all of this, uh, you know, this silt, if we look at it from like a cave diver point of view, when you flutter your feet too quickly, silt <laughs> comes up and you can't see anything. What did China do also with Central Asia slash South Asia? They expanded economic cooperation with the Taliban. In addition to that, they, uh, they're starting to essentially expand the rhetoric of expanding um, the capabilities of not just BRICS, um, but also a way to establish an alternative currency that's based off of a combination of various natural resources to go against the, the U.S. dollar. Um, in addition to that, what they also did at this time, according to some of my uh, Telegram sources, uh, was that... There's Telegram sources. I, I, there's a lot. <laughs> I, out of all the things, don't get me wrong, for those who don't know, Telegram is a, uh, would you call it social media? Social at this point, it, I mean, the Russian Ministry media. of Foreign Affairs has their own yeah. Telegram no, It's basically a social media website. Usually it's really good if you want to get Russian sources. So based on what Samaj has been doing, I guess it's good for getting Chinese sources too. <laughs> what were you saying about Samaj? Um, they reveal the Guam killer, quote unquote, which is their uh, also known as their carrier killer. Um, which you know how, and this is when like physics really gets into this thing. How are you able to essentially establish a missile that will be able to completely destroy a nuclear powered aircraft carrier that is constantly moving? That has to be some really accurate, like pinpoint trajectory for internal missile projections. Like it also depends on what carrier you're hitting because each carrier goes at different speed. You got the This is designed to destroy a Nimitz class carrier. At least. Like that's you have to be able to not only establish a missile that can get around a, an American aircraft carrier defense system. But also the entire carrier strike. Oh, yeah, the carrier strike force is meant to defend the carrier in the center. It is meant to detect the missile, lock on, and fire the entire thing. That is right. their defensive ring. So I was just going back to what got down to the tactical level. Of oh, yeah. like going back to the grand strategy which you brought up. So you could say it this way: Oceania is in trouble. Yes. From George Orwell's perspective, because East Asia and Eurasia are getting closer together, and they, that for a lot of reasons, mm -hmm. maybe U.S. economic sanctions during the Russia-Ukraine war had something to do with it, maybe some other reasons, but we have to think the world's looking not multipolar so much as bipolar. Right. You've got, you've got Oceania, mm -hmm. Western Europe, portions of Southeast Asia mm -hmm. against what would we kind of call it, the heartland? The yeah, the heartland. McKenna's theory. So, so the last time this happened, Oceania won, and now we've got to see the Cold War. And yeah. now we got to see if we're going to win again. But it's interesting enough, because I mean, not to give credit to uh, the Kremlin and the Kremlin, 
Um, <laughs> the gremlin in the gremlin? <laughs> Man, I'm telling you. He had two months to think of that. I did. I really did. Grimly no, he, he was just writing up jokes in, his, in like a notebook the entire time. Like, oh, people. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Samaj. Go ahead. No, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but interesting that in his developed ideology, um, a lot of the, the Soviet periphery um, plus Syria and like down to Mali and then circling around into like Iran and then China is part of like essentially in Putin's idea, Ukraine is by an extension like this contraption of what the Eurasian borders are. And so whatever happens in Libya is by and large connected to Ukraine by and large connected to Israel, by and large connected to Iran. Therefore, all of that encompasses the Russian sphere or the Russian area of influence and, and, and general interest. And that does include China. We all, we, you know, understanding the Sino-Russian uh, relations, even back towards when Stalin, um, you know, was able to acquire territory from the Chinese. Um, and China wants that land back in the same way that the Chinese views Vladivostok as Chinese. So it's, it's interesting to say that we see that as China and Russia further and further gets closer, their periphery gets much more unstable. Mm-hmm. And I think that ideally it's coming from the way in which they're trying to project their influences. Now, China, interesting enough, in my opinion, is doing the complete opposite of, of Russia. Russia is very, 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 very much hard power power first, and then through the success of hard power, will then develop the soft power, the economic, the cultural, the social identities, etc. Basic mercantilism. China is doing essentially a reverse or neo-mercantilism, where we're going to implement the the soft power, the economics, the, the finances, the institutional building, the infrastructure development. And then once those assets and those portions of a, a country's markets have been seized, that gives us all the more reason to then expand our military capabilities, our security presences that we're seeing in Africa, as well as our overall our growth of hard power that we're seeing in uh, whether that's Ukraine, whether that's their $400 billion deal with Iran, whether that's now uh, Taiwan. And with that, I give you two. <laughs> wow. There's just going to be a lot more jokes in all of our laughs in this. I can sense it. But, uh, no, with that, I give you, I can, I completely agree with that first off, and I can give you two examples for why. Central Asia and Armenia. Mm-hmm. The reason why is in Central Asia, this is how it works. You have the Chinese who are giving investment into the Central Asian Republic, the former Central Asian Soviet Republic, whatever you want to call it. And they basically dominate the economic, they're trying to dominate the economics of this region, mm-hmm. while Russia has military bases in this region, as well as holds most of the political hard power in these regions. Mm-hmm. It's the paradigm that keeps this region tightly under their control, or at least under Russian control, to a degree. And then you have Armenia, which is even more interesting. It's cons- to many, it's considered a proto-colony of Russia. Mm-hmm. The reason why is because there's about 6,000 troops that are in that region right now. It's their main operating base for the Caucasus. Mm-hmm. And from there, you have Russian businesses that are all over Armenia to the point that they own the railroad system. Mm-hmm. And the last time I checked when it came to neo-colonialism, 
And I don't mean like modern day stuff. I'm talking about when Britain was doing some fun stuff in Latin America. The first thing they went after was the railroads. Mm-hmm. Control the transportation network, you control the economy, you control the economy, you control the country. Pound sterling ruled there for 100 years. No, that's very true. That's very true. But And you brought up something in your initial point. There is a little bit of tension between China and Russia going into Central Asia. And that's something important to note. East Asia and Eurasia are tight, but they're not the same. They're splittable. They can divorce very easily, and they have in the past. They did in 1956. They could do it again. So, I, I mean, it's just something to look at going forward. Well, the thing with Russia and China also is they, I've, I think I've said this before on podcasts already, they are friends now, but that never that doesn't mean they're going to be friends forever, especially yeah. because they usually have diverging interests. Mm-hmm. Russia wants to hold its sphere of influence. China is trying to expand its sphere of influence, and it's definitely going to try to expand it more into Central Asia than it already has. Well, and I'm thinking Siberia, too. I mean, there's a reason China declared itself an Arctic power. Yep. And it's looking at Siberia, thinly populated, wants Vladivostok back, it wants all the gems, the minerals, the timber, which nobody talks about, but that's a big part of their economy too. There's a lot of ways that the, this alliance, quote-unquote, whatever you want to call it, of convenience could fracture. Oh, 100%. A thousand percent. I mean, we understand China only aligns um, where so long as one, it's a way to expand their influence, but it also is to garner high economic output. Um, those are two things in which, and you know, we talk about the, the mandate of heaven, are very, 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 very important to any type of Chinese regime that looks to sustain itself over the course of generations. For, um, for, the, for, for the current Xi Jinping administration, um, that's very, very, very crucial, especially understanding the internal economic state of affairs uh, with a lot of the Chinese banking systems. Uh, a few weeks ago, billions of dollars just randomly disappeared. Some people don't have access to their savings. And when they do get it, their money is gone. Um, was this a social credit? This was, what was it? So no. it was like a banking issue. It was a banking I, issue. I remember this because it was causing protests, yeah. huge protests. In throughout all of China to the point that like the, China, the CCP was sending out tanks into the streets of some cities. They tried to proclaim it was for a military exercise they was getting ready for. <laughs> but yet you put a big ass tank in front of a bank. China stopped publishing the numbers of its mass protests. They used to do that until about 2012 and they well, stopped because they what, kept tripling and quadrupling. So what I've been told though is that their mili- some of their military, based off my sources, they like to create blogs on their social media. Weibo. Uh, they were kind of pivoting back to um, the whole Chinese, uh, the Taiwanese crisis type situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, three days ago, a little information fell on my lap, that um, the 25th destroyer uh, of their Project 052DL destroyer, or just that Lishui, um, their tail number is 157 was just introduced into the Eastern Fleet of the PLA Navy. The ship was built uh, within two years, and it's also being reported that they are constructing six more destroyers of the same series, um, consisting of 12 units currently, um, that have begun at the PRC shipyards in Dalian and Shanghai to join the plan in 2025. Where'd you, where'd you find this info, Mar-a-Lago? Uh, don't worry about where that's <laughs> <laughs> Those are looking pretty good. Don't, 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 don't worry about where I get and retrieve information from, but just know that they are from very, very handy sources. 
Um, Cracker Jack box. Probably, and I got it from the back of a Cracker Jack box. But uh, going back to what we were talking about way at the beginning, swerving back, how do you guys think Taiwan will be able to retain its de facto sovereignty in the near future? What have we seen with the, with the Pelosi deal and I think other needs, Chinese maneuvers? I think it needs to be two things right now at this point. Um, I don't know. I can only see two things, and this is mostly just mil- from a military standpoint. Like, I think it needs to go, I need to reinstate some of the policies it had from when Chiang Kai-shek was running the island. Massive military, massive amount of equipment, etc. It needs to create more. It needs to recreate some of that infrastructure it used to have during the Cold War. Second, I think it needs to start making a little bit more ties, not just in the United States, but certain other countries that would be more invested into defending Taiwan. The the difficult part for Taiwan will be, um, like you said, weaning off the percentages that mainland China has. Uh, on their economy. Mm-hmm. Um, for as long as China will be able to essentially dictate the health of Taiwan's internal economy, their markets, their industries, even down to you know putting in quote-unquote uh, regulations or random inspections to hurt Taiwanese uh, fisher markets or um, their agricultural markets, that's going to keep Taiwan unfortunately compliant. We also know that there's a lot of CCP operatives on the island. And so that comes down to, well, why don't Taiwan just go back to how it was under uh, Chiang Kai-shek? And you can't, because if you provide, let's say, mass inscriptions, and then you provide these individuals with weapons, you don't know where their allegiance is. You don't. And that bleeds, and then that then bleeds to Taiwanese politics. How will that then occur when now you just armed and trained as a group of CCP sympathizers or inside operatives? Now they have direct access to military training, military equipment, military funding, um, as well as direct access to the political structures. How will that then be turned against Taiwan to weaken them internally so then the CCP can just like, well, now we're just going to go in and take it within, within a week and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, I mean, it's very likely that Taiwan's relationship with China will kind of become like Finland's with Soviet Russia during that time. I think Taiwan's, the clearest route to Taiwan maintaining its current sovereignty would be to develop what the Chinese fear the most. Immediately after Nancy Pelosi touched down, we got news that Taiwan's preeminent nuclear physicist took a dirt nap. Heart attack, if people don't know what that means. Yes. He had a heart attack. So Taiwan's preeminent nuclear physicist strangely died of heart problems. I think China's scared that Taiwan will try to develop nuclear capabilities. That's fair. Just from, just from that, and the fact that it's within their purview. I mean, it would take Taiwan, I mean, what, two to three years if they got fissile material to do it and I to get the capability to strike? They, actually, no, they wouldn't be exactly definitely have a better chance of doing it than other countries. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, South Korea and Japan, they can do it within days. Japan can do it within days. Yeah, I was going to say. South Korea, two to three years. Taiwan, I don't think, has the same nuclear infrastructure, for lack of a better term, those two countries, but I'm pretty sure they, they're, they're, if they can figure out semiconductors, they can figure out how to launch a, a, a technology that's so much older than that. Yeah, semiconductors to so, microchips. I'm pretty sure that they well, can. Yeah. Actually, I remember there was a small conversation I had with someone 
And the one thing we did talk about was creating anti-ballistic missile capabilities. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Taiwan... That's, a def- that's defensive, though. That's, right? I know that's, that's defensive. That's like standing there and taking the punch and be like, okay, I can take more. If we're talking about them being able to strike and say, don't tread on me, mm-hmm. yeah. nuclear proliferation in this case would prevent that from happening. Okay. But And the question is, will it happen and should it happen? Those are the two questions we should ask ourselves when it comes to that. I mean, Taiwan also will have to try to develop some sort of a counter A2AD structure uh, for the yeah. Taiwan crisis yeah. um, that will put Guangdong province uh, under serious reconsideration uh, when they want to do military exercises, etc. And I'm not talking about just simple Cold War-based artillery uh, pieces that Taiwan could just put on their coast. I'm talking about some serious, not just anti-air defense systems, but also... Um, cruise missile technologies that, you know, not even just for land-to-land strike, but also land-to-navy to, um, to or even navy-to-land, etc. Are you um, proposing we do what we did in South Korea, which is put in the fads? I didn't say anything. But <laughs> what I'm saying is that if Taiwan, I mean, Taiwan has the, the internal infrastructure already within their defense sector mm-hmm. to do something like this. It's just a matter of one, um, the, Taiwanese, the Taiwanese government coming to that understanding that, hey, this is very crucial that we need to implement, especially now with China implementing the framework for a blockade if they just so decide to do it. That's one. Two, um, that comes with literally um, strengthening U.S. US, uh, U.S. Taiwanese security understandings when it comes to the Taiwan, uh, Taiwan Strait, but also Taiwan in general. Um, America, the American population may be sick and tired of the non-standings of forever wars. We get that. I'm tired of you too, even though I've only been on this planet for 25 years. We've been at war all our lives. We've, yeah. In our entire lives, yeah. we've been at war. But at the same time, this, in my opinion, the, the question of Taiwan is very different. This is a question of America living up to the principles that it was founded on. Freedom, independence, self-determination. Liberty. We see this string, this autocratic League of, uh, League of Nations being formed um, at this point. And if the United States were to just give up on Taiwan, who just want to be free and be the, you know, the masters of their own fate, then what would that then mean for American principles that we have fought on since this nation was founded? That'll put all of that to question. Yep. So, yeah. Nobody wants to go to war over Taiwan. People are, quite frankly, also sick and tired of hearing about Taiwan. But at the same time, this is a tension that is based on structural foundations as far as like our, our ideology as America and what we're supposed to stand for. A literal tyrannical despots who want to occupy all of Eurasia and dictate the next course of history. They don't care if you're a, a, a genocidal maniac or uh, like Kim Jong-un or a theocratic uh, authoritarian regime like Iran or you know, a family dynasty like the Assad family or uh, fill in the blanks with Belarus, with Soviet nostalgia. Uh, they don't care. They don't. At the end of the day, we have to figure out what does victory mean 
and how we won our team. But I thought I might have cared about victory equal victory. In the literal sense of victory. Yeah. So if we can change that, we'll better understand what our strategy should be when it comes to Taiwan. Now, we talked about that for 20 minutes. <laughs> I felt it was more than 20. That was it was a little bit more than 20, but I'm not going to. Okay, okay. It was like 23 minutes. Um, now we're going to pivot over to uh, Russia, Ukraine. Um, we'll talk about that for like 15 minutes, honestly. Um, we can sound literally in the peace out after that. So, uh, Brian, I know you were a little giddy to talk about some updates. So, go ahead. So, when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, and I want to get Google Maps out because I need a map for reference. Um, you don't even know where it is on a damn map. Excuse me. I'm sorry. It's been so. It's, it's been over two months since I've had to look at a map. Don't put that on me. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, might, I might say something on that one. But um, I'm shocked the internet's working as well for you. As I mean, it's not working for me at all. I don't know what's going on. It just likes my computer. I guess. Yeah. Anyway, no. So from what we can tell with Russia and Ukraine, it, we've seen some very interesting updates, at least within the past week. For example, first off, we hear of explosions happening at a Crimean airbase, which has caused for a bunch of people to try to flee Crimea at this point, at least from what people tell me. Before you keep going, apparently there was an explosion in Yerevan. <laughs> um, Yerevan is in Armenia. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, at least 25 people uh, have died. Um, the Armenian Ministry of Emergency Situations has published the names of the 25 people missing after the explosion at the Sermalu Shopping Center. Um, the number of victims have increased to at least 57 people. 36 of them are in serious condition. Um, on the fact of the explosion in the nearby market, um, a criminal case has been initiated under two articles, um, and that is a developing story. Now, that's from my sources but go ahead it's just interesting to hear about that but also <laughs> excluding that there's been explosion there's been explosions at a russian airbase in crimea there's also been explosions out belarusian airbase mm-hmm. in uh i remember what it's called basically it's, it's in the north it's in um southern in southern belarus where there has been some russian troop movements yeah and then also we have what's happened most recently which was the ukrainians have been able to bomb out Three out of the four bridges connecting uh, Kherson to eastern Ukraine, and they are continuously shelling the area near the fourth one as Russian troops are trying to get out. So, supposedly, we got about seventeen to 20,000 Russian troops that are trapped near and around uh, Kherson trying to get out. It won't happen. It won't happen. I'm just seeing. I'm just seeing the flashbacks of World War II and the uh, encirclement tactic. Well, I mean, but people just you know, a lot of people that like to proclaim that whenever there's an advancement in the technology, then the nature of man will change. That's not the case. Um, we see that it doesn't matter if we we incorporate whether it's HIMARS, um, whether it's TACMS, um harpoon missiles, or S three hundred and S four hundreds or SU fifty sevens, etc. The overall nature of the ground, as far as tactics and strategies, will remain the same. We see trench warfare here in the 20th in the 21st century the same way that we saw in World War One. Um, that part of this war, even it's half right. of it's trench warfare. Half of it is, is, is generally trench warfare. It doesn't matter how precise your cruise missile is, whether it's from the Black Sea or it's from the damn North Sea. At the end of the day, 
The only thing that changes is the conditions on which tactics are implemented as far as the operations and how um, the nature of the war uh, is going to be conducted. But the actual, uh, you know, the, the actual, whether it's fighting to fighting, hand-to-hand, hand-to-hand combat, whether it's maneuvers, um, whether it's weather and geography, uh, all of that has remained a, a, a consecutive constant in how we've conducted warfare. That's not going to change. Um, people say, oh, well, we'll look at, ter- look at uh, terrorists with like their, um, their mass shootings, their IEDs. Well, that's not new either. Um, Greeks poisoned water. And that's, you had, you had like, terrorists back in the 1800s throwing bombs at people. Fucking Russian anarchists literally blew up, te- like, you know, their own empire. What they did, actually. <laughs> they did so blow they just up. They got a U.S. president, too. It, exactly. So, these tactics are not new. It's just the incorporation of technology that changes the perceptions of war. But the actual reality is that humans don't change. We don't. We just manipulate our environment to make things much easier. So whether it's cruise missiles where we could shoot, let's say a cruise missile from the Indian Ocean to Afghanistan uh, to kill a Taliban senior commander, uh, or whether it's uh, Russia shooting a caliber cruise missile from the Sea of Azov to Odessa, did they really change anything? No. So what we're seeing here in, in Ukraine is traditional conventional military warfare. I mean, they're even bringing out, what is it, T-62? <laughs> oh, yeah. They, no, I mean, they're, 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 they're Listen, if they can run... If they run, they can use them. Yeah. So then that, that's where we are right now. Um, now, granted, China is looking at the Ukraine situation, and they're doing some self-assessments and evaluations on how to uh, maneuver when it comes to Taiwan. Um, we, 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 we see that even with the hesitancy of Belarus of getting further into the situation. We even see that now um, in Scandinavia. Finland, Sweden, um, and the Baltic states are looking to unify their defense systems. Mm-hmm. And so way to establish an overarching Scandinavia, whether it's ballistic missile or any air, um, surface to air missile slash and like A2AD, any access area denial uh, system against Russia. That's massive. Absolutely massive. Um, so it's things like that that's developing right now that um, we uh, at the geopolitical pivot um, slash, I guess this is now Aethon Enterprises. Um, we're monitoring, we're tracking, and definitely we'll, we will be back on a weekly basis to keep things fresh and fresh, and definitely I will put the links to our LinkedIn, our Twitter, our um, Instagram, and our TikTok in the description of this uh, of this podcast episode. Give us a follow, give us a shout, comment, whether you love us, you hate us, if you hate Brian, definitely say that. Hey, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but thank you all for for uh, tuning in, and we're looking forward to speaking with you all, uh, you all, relatively soon. Uh, much peace, much love. <laughs>